You're listening to Preach the Word with David Ryu, Sermon Archive. Well, church, please join me in a word of prayer. Praise be to you, Lord, who teaches us your eternal decrees. You guide us and preserve our lives according to your word. When our souls are weary with sorrow, strengthen us according to your word. When we are prone to be led astray, be gracious to us and teach us your law, keeping us from deceitful ways. Turn our eyes away from worthless things and direct us in the path of your commands where there is promise of delight. Lord, protect your church from all forces of evil and division. And as we devote ourselves to the, to the teaching of the apostles and fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer, we ask that you would add to our number day by day those who are being saved. Now, as we incline our ears to the preaching of your word, we ask for the illumination of the Holy Spirit. You promised that your word that goes forth from your mouth shall not return to you empty. And so accomplish what you so desire in us today. We pray all this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, let us continue now in our sermon series through the book of Ephesians. Please open up your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4. And we'll be looking at verses 11 through 14. Ephesians 4, 11 to 14. Hear the word of the Lord. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, to equip his people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Amen. This was a reading of God's word. So last week we looked at verses 3 to 10, where the Apostle Paul calls the church to make every effort to keep the unity, the unity of God's people. The unity among God's people was secured and achieved not by us, but by Christ. And now he has given it to us, and we have the responsibility to display our unity and also maintain it. Yet, unity does not mean uniformity. Paul tells us that each member of the body, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Christ gave a diversity of gifts to his people so that we can use our gifts to serve and build up the whole body of Christ. A diversity of Christians with different gifts and abilities better serves the unity of the church. Nevertheless, our passage today reveals 
that the Apostle Paul had a particular focus on a particular set of gifts that Christ has given to his church. He writes in verse 11, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. Now these are some of the different roles or offices we see in the New Testament church, but there is an important common denominator among them. These are servants of the Lord whose primary task is to relay and deliver the word of God. And so the church, we must wholeheartedly acknowledge and receive them as gifts, lest we insult Christ, its giver. For the rest of our time together then, we're going to identify each of these gifts that Christ has given to his church. And then we're going to see the three main reasons why Christ gave these gifts to the church. Christ himself gave the apostles. The word apostle comes from the Greek word apostolos, which literally means the one who has been sent. And so if we take this literal meaning, then Jesus was an apostle, the apostle of the Father, because he was sent to the world by the Father. Likewise, all Christians, in a sense, are apostles of Christ, because we are sent into the world for his cause. However, we don't commonly use the term apostle in this way. We don't. When Paul speaks of apostles here in verse 11, he is strictly referring to the handful of disciples that were personally commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ. They were the proximate and immediate messengers of the gospel, the eyewitnesses of Jesus' teaching and resurrection. They were uniquely appointed by Christ to receive, to proclaim, and even to write God's word through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. As you can imagine, the office of the apostle is no more. It's gone. It died with the twelve. No man can ever claim the same status and authority of the apostles. That's why I cringe when I hear narcissistic church leaders of megachurches refer to themselves as apostles. Because this creates a lot of confusion. And it will lead to new cults. For instance, there is a new movement on the rise called NAR, New Apostolic Reformation. The movement seeks to establish a new branch of Christianity by restoring the lost office of the apostles. This is happening today. Many well-known churches are actually in support of this movement, such as Bethel. In a recent interview, Bill Johnson, the leader of Bethel Church and Music, confirms that he is an apostle of the church. And he says in the interview that he has the unique perception of heaven, whatever that means. The office of the apostles were indeed instrumental in laying down the foundation of the church in the first century. However, their job is done. 
We have their writings and teachings in the Holy Scriptures. And so Christ gave the apostles and the prophets. The word prophet comes from the Greek word prophetes, which literally means the one who speaks forth. We see God raise up prophets throughout all the Old Testament. They were God's mouthpiece, spokespersons, whom God gave special revelation so that they can convey it to God's people. Their message included prediction, exhortation, encouragement, and even warnings. However, the office of the prophet, I have to admit, is hard to clearly define because there seemed to be different types of prophets all throughout the Bible. There were prophets who also exercised authority and led the Israelites, just like Moses. And then there are other, other prophets that had a less dramatic role, serving the ruler or king of Israel. Furthermore, theologian Wayne Grudem agrees that prophecy in the New Testament is not the same as the prophecy in the Old Testament. Old Testament prophets relayed the word of God, and what they said was absolute. It was not to be challenged. Every word was to be received as, thus says the Lord. But the words of the New Testament prophets did not carry the same kind of weight. In 1 Thessalonians 5.20, the Apostle Paul instructs us to test all prophecies and to hold on to what is good while rejecting every kind of evil. And in 1 Corinthians 14.29, he instructs us to have two or three prophets speak and have others weigh carefully what is said. And so this implies that some words of the New Testament prophets should not be received as the Word of God. By contrast, in the Old Testament, the law actually states that a prophet who spoke anything untrue was to be killed, was to be put to death immediately. But the words of the New Testament prophets were to be tested and weighed carefully for error. So think about it. There must be a reason why that the words of the Old Testament prophets and the apostles' words are part of Holy Scripture. They're part of the Bible today. But the words of the New Testament prophets are not. Prophets were indeed needed in the Old Testament. Prophets were needed in the first century New Testament church to complement the apostles while the Holy Scriptures were being expanded and completed because not everyone had the Bible at that time. Moreover, the prophets in the New Testament were not necessarily considered leaders of the church. They were not. And like the office of the apostle, it is commonly held that the office of the prophet has now ceased. It's gone. There are no more apostles and prophets because they have completed their job. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul tells us that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. 
You see, the foundation is already laid. And the church has access to all the divine revelations that God wants us to know in his word, in the holy scriptures. In 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul writes, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This means that Holy Scripture is sufficient to teach us all that we need to know about God, about humanity, and about salvation. It is sufficient to train us in righteousness. And it is sufficient to thoroughly equip us for not just some good work, but every good work. So Christ himself gave the apostles the prophets, and the evangelists. The word evangelist also derives from Greek. It literally means messenger of good news. Of course, in the Christian world today, just about anybody can be called an evangelist. Certainly, all Christians should evangelize and share the good news with other people. However, when Paul speaks of evangelists here, he is not referring to just anyone who does the work of evangelism. He is not even referring to just any Christian with evangelistic passion or gifts. In the entire New Testament, only once is a man actually called the evangelist. In Acts 21 verse 8, Philip is explicitly called the evangelist. He was one of the seven men chosen as deacons. And these men who were specifically chosen, they were described as people filled with the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. And Philip would later go on to preach the gospel in all the towns of Samaria and beyond. Moreover, in 2 Timothy 4.5, Paul instructs Timothy who is the elder and pastor of the church of Ephesus, to do the work of an evangelist. You see, like the office of the prophets, the office of evangelist, to be honest, is hard to clearly define. But what we can deduce is that both Philip and Timothy were appointed by the apostles to work closely with them in advancing the gospel. And so today, any Christian, even a child who shares the gospel, can technically be called an evangelist. But the actual office of the evangelist that Paul speaks of is probably a special title reserved for tested and appointed servants of the Lord, full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. Now, does the office of the evangelist still exist today? Well, it's kind of complicated. Christians are divided on this issue. The great reformer and Bible teacher John Calvin believed that evangelists were some kind of deputies who were second in command to the apostles. Therefore, he believed 
that the office of the apostles, prophets, and evangelists were bestowed to the church only for a limited time. And actually, many churches would agree with Calvin's view. Yet, another view is that the office of the evangelist is still operating and active today. The evangelists of our time are the tested, gifted, and godly men who are appointed by the church for missionary work and for planting new churches where the gospel is needed. So regardless of which view we take, what we have to remember is that God has given the church faithful servants who are dedicated and equipped to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Now notice here how Paul actually groups together the pastors and teachers. Pastors and teachers are linked together with the single definite article, the. The pastors and teachers. Most likely, this implies one single office with dual functions of pastoring and teaching. In the New Testament, this office is also referred to as the elder or the overseer. They are the leaders of the church who are to oversee and to care for God's flock. But not anybody can be an elder. Just because someone is voted in, just because someone is older, just because someone has been a Christian for a long time, doesn't mean they should be an elder. Just because someone is influential or gives a lot of money to the church, doesn't mean they should be an elder. Just because someone is passionate and loves to serve the church, doesn't mean they should become an elder. One major reason why so many churches today are dysfunctional and unhealthy is because they have chosen unfit, inadequate leaders. They lean on their own human reasoning to choose their elders while disregarding God's word and God's directive on appointing qualified elders. We are so prone to think and act practically rather than biblically. And when we do that, we will reap the consequences. The Apostle Paul writes to Titus, instructing him to appoint elders in every single town. And then he provides the qualifications to look for. He writes, an elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. You see, the truth is, there is a very, very high standard to be an elder because they must manage all the church's affair. 
and they must set an example to other believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. They must be men who are godly in character and also gifted in ministry. Elders are pastors. The word pastor is Latin for shepherd. Shepherds feed, nurture, care, protect, and sacrifice for the flock who is entrusted to his care. Hebrews 13, 17 says, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. You see, being a pastor is a very, very scary thing. Pastors must give an account before God for every member of the church they were entrusted with. They must not take their job lightly. They must not abuse their authority. They must not thirst for power and glory. There is no position or profession like this one. For they must give an account before God for every soul in his care. And sometimes the work of the pastor is very messy. It gets very, very messy. They must settle difficult disputes in the church. They must discipline and rebuke members who need correction or those who are unrepentant. You see, it takes incredible wisdom, patience, love, compassion, and diligence to pastor well. Elders are also teachers. In Mark chapter 6, verse 34, we read that when Jesus saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, without a pastor. And so he began teaching them many things. For Jesus Christ, our good shepherd, when he saw people who needed to be shepherded, he began to do what? He began to teach them. Teaching goes hand in hand with shepherding. That's why in 1 Timothy 3.2, Paul writes that overseers and elders must be able to teach. This is a requirement for every elder. They must be able to teach. Elders are not just administrators who make sure the bills are paid, the building is kept clean, the next fellowship is planned. Elders are not CEOs. Elders are not board of directors of an organization. Rather, elders lead the church by teaching. And they are not to teach from just their own experiences or opinions or human wisdom. They must lead and handle church affairs with the word of God open in their hands. They must instruct and they must make decisions based on the Bible as they humbly seek the will of God. That's an elder. No matter how godly and mature a man might appear, if they are not good students and teachers of the word of God, they are unfit to be an elder. If they are not immersed in the word of God, how can they be defenders of sound doctrine? And how can they make biblically informed decisions for the church? But of course, not all elders 
are gifted communicators or preachers. The Apostle Paul acknowledges that. In 1 Timothy 5.17, he says, The elder who directs the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For Scripture says, Do not muzzle an ox while it is shredding out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. And so what Paul is saying here is this, is that there are specific elders who are exceptionally gifted in preaching and teaching. They are worthy of double honor. They deserve a wage. Their full-time job is to teach, while other elders who do less teaching can work and earn their own wages. That there is one office, one office of the elder who functions both as pastor shepherd and teacher. However, there are ruling elders who focus more on shepherding and managing church affairs, and there are teaching elders who focus more on preaching and teaching. While we can conclude that the office of the apostle and prophets have ceased, and possibly the office of the evangelist as well, we can know for sure that the office of the elder is still active today. And without qualified elders today, the church cannot function and thrive in a healthy manner. Now that we have identified what each of these gifts are that Christ has given to the church, let us see the three main reasons why Christ has given these gifts to the church. First, Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, teachers to equip the church. To equip the church. Look with me to verse 12. Paul writes, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Some people think it's the pastor's job to lead and serve in all the ministries. Actually, that's not the case at all. Church leaders are more like trainers and coaches. They train their athletes, they coach their players to victory. If church leaders represent 1% of the Christian population, then they must mobilize the other 99% to works of service. That's the only way we can fulfill the Great Commission. Every Christian must be a worker in the harvest field and a servant of the Lord. Unfortunately, the vast majority of Christians go to church with a consumer mentality they participate in church for things that only interest them. Community, events, feeling blessed by the worship. But you don't come to worship for blessing. You come to worship for God, to worship God. And the church is not just a place for you to socialize, but it is the body of Christ on earth, His eyes that see the lost, his ears that hear the suffering cries, his hands and feet that serve the poor and needy. Pastor Paul Tripp puts it this way, your life is much bigger than a good job, an understanding spouse, non-delinquent kids, is bigger than beautiful gardens 
nice vacations and fashionable clothes. In reality, you are part of something immense, something that began before you were born and will continue after you die. God is rescuing fallen humanity, transporting them into his kingdom and progressively changing them into his likeness. And he wants you to be a part of it. Do you want to be a part of it, dear brother and sister? Do you want to be equipped and maximize your life for God's kingdom and glory? Do not waste your time. Do not waste your God-given talents on meaningless pursuits. Remember that everything in this world shall perish and only what's done for Christ shall last for eternity. So how exactly is the church to be equipped? Well, they must be equipped with the word of God. Sinclair Ferguson comments, this is the biblical understanding of the preaching of the word of God. Its goal is not merely educational, but transformational. It informs the mind in order to touch the conscience, mold the will, and cleanse the affections and sanctify the whole life. Second, Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, teachers to mature the church, to mature the church. Notice the order and flow of Paul's logic here. Church leaders equip the people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up and then, verse 13, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And so listen to me very carefully here. Being equipped with the Word of God is not enough to become mature. But only as the church is equipped with the Word of God and actually obeying and living out the word of God in works of service, the body of Christ will be built up to become mature in the fullness of Christ. A mature church that is united and growing in the knowledge of the Son of God is a church that is equipped with the word of God and is also a church that is actively serving, serving one another and serving the needs of the lost world. And so honestly ask yourself, have you been maturing as a Christian? Or have you been stagnant for too long? If you want to be mature, you need to be equipped with the Word of God. If you need help with that, use the pastor as a resource. Go to Bible studies, pick up a table talk. Furthermore, if you want to be mature, you want to be actively serving. I've noticed over the years that it is always the Christians who are doing the work of the ministry that are growing to maturity. You see, actively serving Christ is a means of growth. Thirdly, Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, teachers to protect the church. Paul writes in verse 14, 
then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. As Christians are equipped for works of service, built up and become mature, they will no longer be infants, babies. Paul is using the imagery of a small child who has matured into an adult. Once, we were all like small children, just learning how to stand and walk. There is no strength in our legs. We easily lose our balance. We're easily tossed back and forth by the waves and the wind. Likewise, immature Christians are easily swept back and forth by the new popular Christian music, the Christian influencers, the trends. They lack the discernment to know what is false teaching. And they just watch whatever the algorithm sends them and whatever their Google search shows them. Instead of digging deep into the Word of God, they'd rather listen to catchphrases from inspirational speakers who take the Bible verses out of context. You see, children are gullible. They are easy to deceive and manipulate. Immature Christians are swayed by the teaching and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. That's why we need to be equipped. We need faithful preachers of the Word of God. That's how the sheep are protected from danger. The sheep listen and recognize the voice of their shepherd, the Word of God. If there is a sheep that goes astray and is about to fall off the cliff, the shepherd needs to call out to them, correct them, and bring them back. Likewise, if a Christian is living in sin or they are embracing false teaching, the pastor must call them out. But too many pastors today are scared to offend people and to be canceled. Too many pastors are on the pulpit for their own popularity and glory. Beloved church, we don't need more entertaining and inspirational talks on the pulpit. What we need is the whole counsel of God from Genesis to Revelation. And if I ever stop preaching the word of God, I should be stripped of my position. The Bible is not boring. Yes, sometimes it's difficult to understand, but it is not boring. It is not outdated. My job here is not to dumb down the Bible and make the Bible relevant to you. The Word of God is absolutely perfect and it is already relevant. It is absolutely relevant to you. Your life depends on it. And so, beloved church, let us thank Christ for the gift of the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, and let us remember that Jesus Christ himself was the ultimate apostle who was sent by the Father to atone for sinners. Let us remember that Jesus Christ himself was the ultimate prophet who spoke the words of eternal life to us. 
And let us remember that Jesus Christ himself was the evangelist who came to preach the good news of his death and resurrection. And let us remember that Jesus Christ himself is the ultimate pastor and teacher, our good shepherd, who laid down his life to save his own. Let us pray. God, we thank you so much for the gift of church leaders, the gift of your word, and your word that is communicated to us. Help us to receive your word, to submit and to obey your word, to live out your word, all to the glory of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.